Well, if you're new to New Hope, um, you will find, if this is your first Sunday here, that we're in the midst of a study in a series of Revelation, and uh, this is week 21, so we're about halfway through because we're in it for about 40 weeks, and uh, what you have stepped into this morning might be quite shocking to you um, because we're going to be looking at the Antichrist a little bit. Chapter 11 is the first mention of the beast, 666, the Antichrist. In two weeks, uh, in three weeks also, we're going to be looking more intently at the nature and the character of the Antichrist. But today, specifically in chapter 11, we're going to look at two guys who are going to go head-to-head with the Antichrist. Two men who are witnesses that God places in Jerusalem during the last days to speak powerfully for the people of Israel who have walked away from God and rejected him. So we see even in the last days in the book of Revelation, God's still calling the Jewish people as well as the Gentile world back to himself, calling all races of men back. But specifically, he places these two individuals there as powerful, powerful witnesses. If you go back thousands of years, and I do mean multiple thousands of years, to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to see appearing on the scenes prophets, men who were not just looking into the future, but men who spoke with what Scripture calls a prophecy gift, meaning they exhorted people to return to God, people who had rejected him. You find it, first of all, you'll see this one up on the screen in 2 Kings chapter 17, God telling people about who the prophets were. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through, mo- through my servants, the prophets, men such as Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Jeremiah, all spent their lifetime trying to get people to return to God. You find them littered throughout the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah was so consumed with telling people about who God was that he went to some extraordinary measures to get their attention. Jeremiah is called the crying prophet. He went his entire lifetime without seeing one single individual return to God. That's not a success rate. But he did what God called him to do. He was faithful in the midst of discouragement. He was so consumed with preaching the word that as he roamed through the streets of Jerusalem, he took off his clothes at nighttime to get people's attention and wandered through the streets naked. You ever seen a naked preacher? (laughs) You're not about to. (laughs) Jeremiah was so consumed with his desire to call people back to God that he actually built fires out of dung, out of feces, And as the smoke gathered up, people would say, oh, what a stink. And when they would comment on it, he'd say, let me tell you about God. He did extraordinary things to try and call people back. All the prophets experienced the kind of resistance that he experienced. It was painful for them. But God used them because they were wandering away. Now, in the New Testament, you see prophets pop up on the scene. Paul would have been considered a prophet. Paul proclaimed this. Look with me up on the screen. You'll see it in Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He said that publicly. 
And then he followed it up with a rhetorical question in verse 14. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? See, Paul asked the question that we need to think of when we think of the book of Revelation. How will these people here who live in the last days, how will they understand that God's calling them back through all these acts of judgment, all these plagues, without a speaker? So first he chooses those 144,000 that you learned about a few weeks back. Now we see he chooses two guys who are powerful witnesses that step onto the scene. In this chapter, we're going to see that they're going to experience some head-to-head confrontation with the Antichrist. This is a very, very difficult chapter. As a matter of fact, most theologians will say what you're about to look at is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation, mostly because it is filled with minutia. Some of the people in the 9 o'clock service left going, oh, my head hurts. I'm sorry, I'm telling you in advance. It's just a lot of detail. There's a lot to take in. So rather than getting bogged down in the minutia, we're going to try and see that overarching principle. And here's the overarching principle that comes out of it. What God calls you to do specifically, he will take you through it if he's called you to do it. You're going to see that in the life of these individuals. So open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. If you're new here and you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. And you are welcome to take one of those Bibles with you when you leave today. We really want you to have God's Word in your hand. So Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So John immediately gets to step out of observer mode. He's not just a writer looking at this story. He's now called to participate and somebody gives him a tape measure. He's handed this measuring rod and he's told to go out and measure the temple. Well, here's what's remarkable about that. This temple that we think of when we think of Scripture doesn't exist in John's lifetime. If you know anything about archaeology or anything about history at all, you understand that the Romans in A.D. 70 descended upon Israel and obliterated Israel as a nation, and they destroyed the temple. The beautiful temple that was built by Solomon and then rebuilt by Herod the Great was destroyed in A.D. 70. And John's writing this in A.D. 96, 26 years after the fact. Yet he's being told to measure the temple. So obviously he's looking forward in time to a temple that's going to be built that hasn't been built yet. The presence of this temple must have been incredibly encouraging to John because as a Jew, they long for the temple to be rebuilt. It is the greatest desire of Jewish people to once again have a temple built. One of the things that we're told to watch for in the last days as an indication that they're approaching is the reconstruction of the Jewish temple. It's throughout Scripture that there will be an actual temple in which sacrifices will take place again built in Jerusalem. There's a couple problems with that. First one is the Muslim Dome of the Rock, the third holiest shrine to Islam, sits in the very location 
where the third temple, what we'll call the tribulation temple, is to be built. Now, if you know anything at all about the friction between Jews and Muslims, you know it's very unlikely in our current political climate for that to happen. Nonetheless, the Jewish people are very determined individuals, and they are undaunted. So in the last 20 years, they have moved forcefully advancing with their plans of reconstructing the temple so that when the moment is right, totally absent of Christianity, they don't care about what Revelation says. They want their temple. And so they're moving forward with their plans. I want to show you three images that will help you understand how far advanced they are in the process of actually bringing this together. The first thing I want you to see is what an architect has been working on. This is an architect's rendering, a 3D rendering. Let's go ahead and see that first one, Alex. This is the Jewish temple as they intend to reconstruct it on the Dome of the Rock, looking very similar to the ancient temples that were built previously. Let's go to the next image. In front of the temple, there will be an altar, and on that altar, they have to sacrifice specific animals. According to the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, there are specific animals that have to be used for sacrifices. In the temple setting, it is necessary for them to have a red heifer. What's important about this detail is, generations ago, the red heifers went out of existence here on planet Earth. They became an extinct species. In 2002, a Texas farmer, who is also someone who works with genetic engineering, has a degree, a PhD in genetics, found a way to bring back red heifers. Now, the high priest from Israel actually flew to Texas to examine the red heifer to see if it was kosher, if it met the requirements they have for sacrificing red heifers. He found that it did not. So the geneticists went back to work again. In 2008, they reintroduced another set of red heifers. This time, when the kosher high priest looked at it, they declared it almost there, but not quite because he had a few strands of white hair on his arm, and he has to be completely red. So you see that geneticists are helping them work on this process. Third thing that I want you to see, this is a really important detail because there's a group called the Temple Institute who have been working on this process for about 15 years now. Look with me on the screen at this golden candelabra. This candelabra was rebuilt about six years ago. If I was standing next to it, you would find that it's at my head height. That's how big it is. This is an exact replica of the candelabra, the menorah, we call it, that was carried away by the Romans to Rome and then melted down for its gold content. This, among 90 other pieces, 90 other artifacts, have been rebuilt by the Temple Institute. They're storing all these items in a warehouse, waiting for the moment when they recapture that land, that piece where the Dome of the Rock is at. John wrote about this 2,000 years ago that this temple would be back again. Now, the Jews are not doing this because of the Revelation, book of Revelation says it. They're doing it because God has placed within them a longing to see this born out. Now, specifically, why measure the temple? Do you get online once a week and check your bank accounts? Do you maybe once a month check your stock reports? Do you measure the things that you own? That's that phrase here. God's telling John to measure the thing that belongs to him. 
This temple belongs to God. And he's not only measuring the temple, he's measuring the altar and those who are worshiping within it. He's saying, these are mine. I am calling these people to myself. Because you're seeing here in the last days that God is pouring out his spirit on Israel and calling Jews as well as Gentiles saying, hey, pay attention. I'm at work here. And you only have a little bit of time to respond. This is in keeping with what Zechariah the prophet wrote in the Old Testament. Look on the screen, Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Who are they mourning over? Jesus. They're mourning over the nation of Israel that for generations rejected their Messiah. And now they're realizing it was really him all this time. It was him. And they're mourning as one mourns for a firstborn. So it's in fulfillment with Scripture. Now, this reawakening of the Jewish nation causing an, an insane jealousy from the Antichrist. And the first mention that we see of him is when he's referred to as the beast. So as the Jews are carrying out their sacrifices in the temple and they're going about the process of worshiping God again and they're turning to Christ, the Antichrist goes ballistic and he gets extremely upset. I'll teach you about that in a couple of weeks, but the period of time is known as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist enters the Jewish temple and sets up a throne for himself so that he'll be worshipped. Paul wrote about this in 2 Thessalonians. Look with me up on the screen. This is at the middle point of the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, meaning the day of the Lord, last days, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, speaking of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So, what does he do? So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Paul writing about what Daniel wrote about, what we're learning about in Revelation that in the last days, the Antichrist, when he appears on the scene, is going to stop at the midpoint and say, you will not worship that God. Worship me, for I am God. That's what he's going to declare himself as. So we see here specific instructions that say, leave out the outer part of the temple. Don't measure it, John. Well, why would he tell him that? Because John is a believer in Christ. And at this point in time, Jews and Gentiles have come together. They are the church, the church triumphant. It would be natural for John to want to measure the outer court of the Gentiles. That's what this is referring to, the outer court where the Gentiles worshipped. You see, if you understand in Judaism, the temple that sat at the very center was surrounded by the temple where men could gather, surrounded by that with the temple of women, the, the court of women, and then outside that, the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could never go beyond their boundary line. So the instructions here are, don't measure the court of Gentiles. 
I think this is one of the strongest arguments for a pre-trib rapture of the church in this context right here in understanding that John has to be told not to measure the outer court where the Gentiles dwell because it would be natural for John to say, why not? Look with me on the screen at Colossians 3.11. John understood this principle. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Paul wrote about this also in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.14, Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing his flesh the enmity which is the law of the commandments constrained, contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, meaning Jews and Gentiles brought together thus establishing peace and might reconcile them them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. But now John's being told, leave the Gentiles out. Why? Because I believe at this point in time, the church has been raptured away and already taken. And so he has to be told specifically, leave them out. These are the people who are opposed to me. Measure the people within the temple. These are the people who belong to me. This is a culmination of the time that Jesus referred to as the time of the Gentiles. Look up on the screen, Luke 21, 24. Jesus is speaking here. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, is your brain hurting yet? That's a lot of information, isn't it? And we see here the beginning of the destruction of of the city of Jerusalem because Antichrist sets up his throne. He begins to trample under the city of Jerusalem along with all those who are opposed to God. But despite his efforts, despite his best attempts, he cannot eliminate the two witnesses that you're about to learn about. He cannot do anything to destroy or take away because God has done something very specific. God has measured and protected He's decided what is his, and he said, John, measure it out. This belongs to me. And so now we see what is instrumental in the conversion of these individuals are these two witnesses. Look at verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These guys for three and a half years will be untouchable. They will have some form of a shield protecting them and their entire purpose for existing is to preach so that the remnant can be returned to God and can believe. That's their entire purpose for existence. Notice where the authority comes from. When you step out into work for God on behalf of the kingdom, or when you step out into things that you know God has called you to do, when you are convinced, it does not come from you. You do not give yourself authority or power. It comes from God alone. So he says specifically about these witnesses, I will grant them authority to give them some very specific powers that you're about to learn about. So this power comes from God alone. And at this point, he has not identified who they are. He just says, my two witnesses. The word witnesses is the word martyr, where we get the word martus, multiple martyrs. There's two of them here. And so they're going to experience death because they proclaim the gospel of Christ. 
And look at the detail. They will prophesy 1,260 days. I want you to note as you work through the book of Revelation, you're going to see the numbers three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. You get your calculator out and figure out any way you want, it exactly figures out every single time to three and a half years. There's no division of it. Three and a half years in which God's going to be using these individuals to do something that you do every time you speak on behalf of God. Do you know that every time you speak on behalf of the kingdom, you do what these two individuals do? I want you to see the definition for it. The word is propheteo. It means to prophesy. Prophesy doesn't always apply to things in the future, meaning future events. Prophesy means when you speak under inspiration. Look at the definition for it. Propheteo, to speak under inspiration. Do you speak of your own authority when you speak of the things of God? Or do you speak of what you know of to be true in the word of God? If that's the case, you're speaking under the authority of God's Holy Spirit working through you. So if you propheteo and you say, this is what God's word says, you're doing the same thing that these two witnesses are doing. They're not only speaking of future things, they're speaking of things they know to be true about the nature and character of God. They are actual preachers, prophets like you see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, like you're compelled to do on a regular basis, speak for God. And here's some details about them. They're wearing sackcloth. Anybody in here ever wore sackcloth? I never have. Think of wearing a burlap bag, okay? And these guys are out in public wearing this. This is a reference to the Old Testament form of mourning. When Jacob found out that Joseph had been killed, so he thought, he immediately put on sackcloth because he was in mourning. These individuals are not putting it on for themselves. They're wearing sackcloth because they're so burdened by what has happened to the world and that everybody is rejecting God. They're mourning and they're grieving deeply. And so they're wearing visibly this sackcloth. Now, God says something very interesting about them, that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands who stand before the Lord. I want you to write down Zechariah chapter 4, and later today, you read it when you get a chance. Zechariah chapter 4 will explain that to you, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. But in a nutshell, here's what's going on. These two individuals who lived during the time of Zechariah's life, Zerubbabel and Joshua, spoke mightily on behalf of the kingdom of God. And they were called the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And here's the picture for it. You notice the description says that there was a lampstand with olive trees on either side of it. In ancient world timeline, when individuals wanted to burn an oil lamp, they would go to someone who sold oil from the olive tree, or they would harvest it themselves. And they would wring it out, and they would bring it and pour it in their lamp, and then light the wicks. This imagery shows that the trees are connected to the lampstand and that there's an automatic feeding, meaning there's no man work involved. The power that's coming through their message is coming from God alone. And he's speaking through his witnesses, so this redemption light that they're speaking of, 
that infuses this lampstand is coming directly from the source, and there's being revival as a result of it. This speculation here about who they are, though, it gets into weird territories. I've heard some strange suggestions. Some of the most trustworthy ones would be individuals who believe that this is a reappearance of Moses and Elijah, based on some very sound scripture. But they say, because of the power these guys have and the ability to speak things from God into the earth, you're looking at a representation of the power of Elijah and Moses. Let me show you up on a, uh, specifically, um, I'll just speak it to you. Destroying enemies with fire, withholding rain, turning water into blood, striking the earth with pestilence, and the promise that comes from the book of Malachi in chapter 4 that Elijah will return one day. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Okay, so here's where it takes a turn. And we discover how God has infused these individuals with power specifically from him. Verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, Fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. If anyone wants to harm them means they will be collectively hated on the surface of the earth. They are speaking for God in a time that's the most hostile time on planet earth. And they respond with astounding power. Their ability to call down fire from heaven is absolutely amazing. I don't think that they're like dragons who open their mouth and fire ushers forth. But I think what you're seeing here is a repicture of what Elijah had the capacity to do to call God's fire down from heaven. You see it throughout the Old Testament that people are specifically incinerated when they try and kill these guys. And I know this is very graphic, but I want you to see the definition for this. The word is casteo, and it denotes consumption with intensity. So when, however God does it through them, whenever they call forth fire, it incinerates the individuals who try and attack them. There's only one individual who can kill them, and that is the Antichrist. You're going to see that in just a minute. It says in Scripture, specifically, individuals who try to kill them must be killed themselves in the same way because of this truth. God will not allow the interruption of his message. If he has said, go do this, then you better go do this. Because he's telling these individuals, I will strongly defend you. I will protect you. I am granting you authority. So this is a repeat of what you learned last week. God strongly defends you when you strongly defend his word. You defend his word, he's got your backside every single time. These individuals are strongly defending God, and he has shielded and protected them. They have the power to shut up the sky. Rain will not fall. They can strike the earth with every single plague. That's some power. Now, I understand, I deduce from this, that these individuals are in touch with God. 
They know the mind and the will of God. They understand his purposes. And when he grants his authority, he grants his power to individuals, and he gives them the capacity to go out and speak, he expects them to go out and speak on his behalf. If he's gifted you with the ability to perhaps do medical practice, and he's called you to go and work on some individuals who are struggling and they're sick, he's gifted you with that ability, you should go out and do that. If he's gifted you as a teacher and you can help people understand how to read, he's gifted you with that capacity. He gives you the authority. These guys, even more so, move with miraculous authority and power. I will grant them the authority and they have to step out and defend my word. And they speak with power. So just like Noah, just like Moses... Just like Jonah, just like Elijah, just like Peter, these guys are proclaiming God's judgment on the earth and they're calling people to return to God. How do you think the Antichrist is going to respond to that? Exactly what you think. He's going to go head to head with them. People will be searching for a way to desperately destroy these guys because they're calling these plagues down and they won't be able to until something specifically happens. Look with me at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. If you're going to underline anything in this section at all, I would take that section right there and underline those words, when they have finished. Some of you were here three weeks ago when Ron taught on the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Trumpets and gave you an explanation what those different celebrations meant. In the midst of his teaching, he played a video for you. The video was produced by my son Adam at a church down in South Carolina. It's called Zach's Story. In this particular video, Zach is being interviewed because he's dying with cancer. It was produced a couple weeks ago. A week and a half ago, the senior pastor at Adam's church sat down with Zach. And he said, Zach, have you left anything undone? Anything that you feel you need to do yet? Zach's a man of very few words. So if you ever had a conversation with him, you would find that he's just two or three words is all you'd ever get out of him. And he responded to his pastor saying, no, there's nothing undone. I've done everything I was supposed to do. So Perry then said to Zach, do you have anything you want to say to the church? This is Zach's response. I'm finished, you're not. Is that not powerful? Zach died a week ago today. On Thursday, he had done the interview with his pastor. On Tuesday, they held the funeral. And everybody in the church heard him say, I'm finished, you're not. So get out there. These individuals were finished with what God had called them to do. They had completed the task that they had been called to. So when they were finished, the Antichrist comes up out of the abyss and notice his origin. It speaks specifically that he ascends from out of the abyss. We're going to study him a little bit more in detail in a couple weeks. You'll understand his makeup. But at this point, he's going head to head with these two powerful prophets who have all this power that they're able to call down from heaven. This is very consistent with the nature and the character of Satan. This is not Satan. Satan is always referred to as the dragon. This is the beast, the Antichrist, the one who is infused with power from Satan. Daniel saw this also. 
Looking back, way back in time, Daniel wrote about this. Daniel 7.21, as I watched this horn, meaning the Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and defeating them. So let's look at the last couple verses and see how this wraps up. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. These from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So when it says that they're laying in the streets of the city where their Lord was crucified, what city is that? Jerusalem. They're so apostate, they're so far removed from God that they're compared to Sodom and Egypt, the place where their Lord was crucified. And notice this detail. Peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will look upon them as they lay in the streets. I don't know if any of you are old enough here, probably a few of you are, to remember hearing pastors speak years ago about how in the world could this possibly be that everybody is going to be able to see these dead individuals. We had television, obviously, but there was not broadcast television like there was in the video world. And so we understood that perhaps they'll be capturing it on tape. But then we started looking at this thing that arrived in the 1990s called the Internet. And all of a sudden we realized people around the world will be connected in such a way that they're all going to be able to see something at the exact same time. So individuals pop out their cell phones and they start taking pictures and posting it to YouTube. These guys are dead in the streets and now they're going to have a party and celebrate. We got these guys out of our life. Party! Yeah, no more plagues. It says that they killed them. Why? Because they tormented them. What did they torment them with? The Word of God. They taught the Word of God, and the world was so antagonistic against it that they partied when they died in the streets. Have you ever sent someone a gift because one of your enemies died? I can't imagine that. Yet that's what Scripture says. Their hate for God is so great that these two individuals are the focus of God in their life, and they hate God so much that they send each other gifts. And now it becomes a party until verse 11. This is how it ends. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Yeah, I'm guessing that would get their attention. (laughs) That'd get my attention. Think about this, church. Not since God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. Not since Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, has an event like this occurred. The chest begins to rise, the lungs fill with air, the heart begins to beat, the fingers begin to tingle, and they pop up on their feet. And Scripture is right for saying, great fear fell upon all who were watching them. I believe panic will seize the world. If you thought the cell phones came out before to take pictures, this is when it really comes out. YouTube will be inaccessible because there'll be so many hits on it. CNN will be playing the tape over and over and over again because of what happens next. Verse 12, 
And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. You remember a word I taught you about a year ago? Yahweh? The word means awesome. This is Yahweh. This is a two-man rapture. And they all get to watch it. The whole world watches them being taken away. Now, I would ask the question, why not let them preach now? If they've been unsuccessful as preachers at this point, except for calling Jerusalem back, why not set them free? I mean, they've been resurrected. They'd be really powerful preachers at this point because of a truth that Jesus said. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 16, 31. If unbelievers do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now the fear around the city is going to increase because there's an earthquake that takes place shortly after this. Here's the last verse, 13. And in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. You learned that the word coming quickly means antechi. That means when it happens, it's in rapid succession. It happens very fast. I'm going to transition with you to a question that I have for you as you leave this morning. Out of this text, it spoke really strongly to me that God calls every single one of you, myself included, to assignments throughout our lifetime. There is indeed things that he has asked you to do that you've said no to. There's things that he's asked me to do that I said no to and repented later and said, okay, I give, I'll go do it. But at first, man, I was totally resistant. There are perhaps things in your life right now that God has called you to do and he said, I'll give you the authority It may be something as simple as confronting a friend who's offended you deeply, someone who's caught a division in your relationship with them. But it may be something as big as him calling you to do something for the kingdom and you've said no to. I bet in the moment that I suggested that, it popped into your mind. That's the very thing I want to leave you with this morning, that as you leave, I'm going to pray for you to identify what that thing is that God's called you to do And you know this for sure. If he has called you to do it, he will take you through it. And when you are finished, then he can move you on to your next assignment. But you have to honor his request to you first if you're truly his servants. So let's pray together as a church that we can identify those things. Would you bow with me?